Well, we now have our Bible reading, which is um, Revelation 2 and 3. And once again, if you're using the Church Bible, it's on page 1028. I guess one thing you can be looking for as we read through the passage is those um, pictures of Jesus that we've seen back in chapter 1, coming back up in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And it says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I'll throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into a great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I'll strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you'll not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have a still f- a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, and who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one's able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I'll write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, 
the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you either were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realising that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined by fire, so you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, in a minute we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, let me just mention a couple of things. The first is we have a question time at the end of the sermon, so as soon as the sermon ends, I'll open it up for questions, and we get a chance to ask about two or three questions, depending on how succinctly I answer. Um, another thing to mention is you have a service sermon outline in your service sheet, which you can use if that's helpful to you. And then finally and most importantly, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect on this image of Christ that we have given to us by John, we pray, Lord, that we would see uh, the power behind it and the role that he plays in encouraging us to continue to persevere, to endure tribulation and not to forsake his name but instead to bear witness and continue on so that we conquer to the end. Amen. How do you imply movement through a static picture? This is one of the challenges the artist faces. Their picture is a still. It's a single shot in time. However, a picture that suggests movement will be dynamic and far more interesting than a picture that makes no attempt to imply motion. A lack of motion will create a dull painting and people will pass by without noticing, while a painting with motion will draw the spectator in. And so the artist has various techniques he or she can use to create movement. So, for example, in pop art, lines are used to create movement. So, in Roy Lichtenstein's piece, In the Car, a man and a woman sit in a car and lines in both the background and foreground indicate the car is travelling at some speed. Or in the painting, El Halalo, by John Singer Sargent, a Spanish lady is off balance. She looks like she could fall. But in the context of the painting, how she holds her her arms and the musicians in the background 
mean that her precarious posture actually gives the indication of dancing. These are two examples of still pictures that are able to portray movement. Now these are just two techniques of many, but why have I decided to start this morning describing static pictures that imply movement? Well, in Revelation 1, as we read earlier, John has a vision. Now, obviously, his vision doesn't have to be static. In fact, it isn't. In verse 12, we see that John turns round to see the voice that was speaking to him. But then when John begins to describe his vision to us in words, it can feel like a still. There are lots of lampstands. A man stands in the middle. He has a robe on. His hair is white. His eyes are on fire. His feet bronze. His voice is like roaring waters. And he holds seven stars. His mouth has a sharp sword. And his face is like the sun. What is interesting is, though John sees all this, he describes it to us in words. So as he lists the description... We may attempt to imagine what this looks like in our mind. But as we do this, we end up with quite an odd picture. And then it's hard to know what to do with this final composition. And once again, the picture appears quite static. There are no lines suggesting movement. And no precarious posture to suggest the man is about to move. I think the fact that he stood among the lampstands caused us to create an image of a man with his feet firmly placed on the ground. He isn't moving. Is he doing anything at all? And yet I want to suggest that this description that John gives is about movement. This is a dynamic picture. Each description is more than just his appearance. Behind it is an action. It all has to do with what he does. And the reason I think it's legitimate that we can draw this conclusion is found in Revelation 2 and 3. In Revelation 2 and 3, John is told to write a letter to seven churches. And in his introduction to each of the churches, he uses a description of Christ that comes from Revelation 1, most of which comes from the vision that John sees. This description then relates specifically what, to what Christ has to warn the church. And then further details is given of what Christ will provide for the one who heeds the warning, and in the end, conquers. What this means is, is Revelation 2 to 3 provides the information we need to begin to understand the vision that John's seen in Revelation 1. So, when John introduces himself to the church in Ephesus, Eph, sorry, when Jesus introduces himself to the church in Ephesus, 
He does so as the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the golden lampstands. You can see that in chapter 2 verse 1. And the intention here is that the church would appreciate that Jesus is present with them. Because he's present with them, he knows precisely what they are up to. Whether that be good, that they patiently endure, and are quick to challenge anyone who they suspect has been false servants of Christ. Or, whether that be bad, they no longer have the same zeal for their witness to Christ as they first did. And so bearing in mind that Jesus knows them and sees them, you'd hope that they would be moved and motivated to repent. For if they continue to fail to be a light for the gospel, then Jesus will return and remove their lampstand. This is the church's business, being a light to those in the dark. If the church is not doing that, then they're no longer the church. So the lampstand is removed. But those who conquer and do repent, they will dwell with God and be nourished by the tree of life. We can add to this the description of Christ in the letter to Smyrna. As the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus is sovereign over the whole of history and has revealed his divine attributes by defeating death. And so though the church is expecting or experiencing tribulation and days of testing, it's a comfort to hear that that Jesus is in control of everything that they experience. This provides a basis for them to endure. Knowing if they do endure, though they might die at the hand of their persecutors, they'll be spared from the second death and rewarded with the crown of life, which is eternal life. The letters to the church in Pergamum and in Thyatira are similar. We'll focus on Pergamum just for the sake of time. Here, the sharp two-edged sword is important for the people of Pergamum. On the one hand, the sword shows that Christ helps the people stand against the satanic opposition of the church. On the other hand, there are idolaters in the church. And so here the double-edged sword is Christ's judgment against those that would infiltrate the church with idolatry. And so Christ calls them to repent. Otherwise the sword will strike down. But if they do repent, they will receive manna from God, communion with God, And those that trust in Christ's name and don't forsake it will be given a new name that only those who conquer will receive. 
We have the key of David, seen in the letter to the church in Philadelphia. This brings to mind the fact that Christ is sovereign over death and judgment. And he provides a door that's wide open for the church. And this contrasts with the church's presumed experience at the synagogue. Jewish Christians have had the door to the synagogue closed to them. But the leaders of the synagogue, they do not hold the power to open or close doors. That power belongs to Christ. And later on in Revelation, we'll read how there is no physical temple in the new heavens and new earth. Yet here, the promise to those who conquer is that they will become pillars of the temple. So they may be kept from the synagogue, but if they don't forsake Christ's name, they can, be looking, they can look forward to being part of the eternal temple. Jesus is described as a faithful witness to the church in Laodicea. Throughout the letters, at the heart of the church's mission is that the church be a faithful witness to Christ. The church knows what it looks like to be a faithful witness because they have the example of Christ. Christ was a faithful witness to his Father, never faltering but bearing the testimony given to him to speak by his Father. And Jesus would go on to be crucified, but then become the firstborn from the dead. And this is what the church must do to be a faithful witness to Christ. If his church faithfully witnesses, they will become part of his new creation. They will be given authority, just as Christ has been given authority to rule over creation. Now, we haven't got long this morning, so we've only been able to begin to appreciate the imagery that's being used. But hopefully what we're beginning to see is that this is a dynamic picture. There may be no lines to imply movement, or no precarious positioned ladies that suggest dancing. But the vision of Christ is no still. It is action. Christ is active over history, sovereign over everything that takes place. So though the Christian may suffer, he or she needn't worry that all is lost because it's all part of God's plan. Christ is the judge. He will bring all those who rebel against him to justice. He'll also vindicate all those who remain faithful to him. No matter what they suffer now, their suffering will be turned into glory in the eternity to come. But woe to anyone who claims to be part of the church but dabbles with idolatry. It won't be tolerated and Christ the judge will bring them to task for their worshipping of the creation rather than the creator. But now the opportunity is given to repent. Now is the time to escape judgment or he or she will be given and he or she will be given authority with Christ 
And Christ calls us to be a priesthood. We as the church witness to him. We have the privilege to take the gospel to those who are yet to repent. There's no other way than they'll hear. It's the role of the church. And if we do not make it our mission, not only are we in jeopardy of being spewed out, but God's elect will not hear. If we do not behave like a church, our lampstand will be removed. It will not matter what we call ourselves. If we not do, do not do the work of the church, we'll have nothing to do with Christ. But if we conquer, we anticipate everything promised in the letters to the seven. There is much for us to miss out on, and there is much for us to gain. John paints a vivid picture. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these things that have been recorded by John and how they are your message uh, revealed to us through Christ. We pray, Lord, that we take and heed these warnings. We thank you, Lord, that we're not isolated or on our own, but we have the comfort and assurance of knowing that Christ is still active in the church as he is stood amongst us. We pray, Lord, that we'd take this as both the warning that it is, that he can see what we do, and he's aware of us, he knows us, and therefore we're kidding ourselves if we don't study, trust, and obey his word. But at the same time, he's with us as we go through trials and tribulations. And so we pray, Lord, that we would have the hope of the future in mind that though there might be difficulties here on earth we can look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where we'll live with him and enjoy all the great promises that he's made for us amen well i mentioned at the start that there would be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of what we've been thinking about um, there, it is quite a dense chapter, so there's a lot going on in there. Um, so if you want to pick up on something we haven't spoken about, you could do. Or if you just like further clarification, that's great. Or anything else. I'm also aware that it's extremely hot in here. So you're not all looking, you're looking a little bit hot. <laughs> Yes, Katie. Yeah, let me just repeat the question for the recording. So on the one hand, the church in Ephesus, they are celebrated for patiently enduring. Um, but at the same hand, they are criticised in verse 4 
but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. How could it be? Are they enduring or are they not enduring? What's going on here? That sort of thing. You, your question was slightly more nuanced than that, but that's just a clumsy way of keeping it there for recording. Okay, so um, I think what's happening here is that he's beginning off by telling them what they have got right. And so specifically, I think they are a church that focuses in on the purity of the church. So they're concerned that the church is um, so anyone um, I guess you might put it I guess as their concern for sound doctrine so any question that's brought in or any um, anything that's they're unsure about they have Particularly, you've got in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, but I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So I think that's where he's highlighting that your passion is bringing purity into the church. So when people come in with false teaching, you put that to bed straight away. So that must mean then in verse 4, when he says, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first, that's referring to something else where they fall short. Now, it's interesting because verse 4, isolated, doesn't give you that much information um, in terms of what that first love might be. The three things that people suggest are, most commonly, love for one another. Another one is love for Christ, which is kind of difficult given the first... Um, what they're celebrated for. But then the third one is that the first love is their witness of Christ. So the idea being that when they first became Christians, they were, had this great zeal for telling other people about Christ. Now there's a few good reasons to choose the third as the most favoured option. And the first is the whole context of these letters seems to be um, all about the church testifying to Jesus' name and witnessing to him. And ultimately, as we're going to see in the reflection, that's the role of the church. That, that's the thing that the church brings that's unique that you can't find anywhere else. There's also a reference in Matthew 24. What was it, Adrian? Twelve to fourteen. Matthew twenty-four, verses twelve to fourteen. We were talking about this before, and it says, "And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, as is a testimony to all nations, and the end will come." So here, you've got in verse 12, love will grow cold, but the one who endures will be saved. And the context in which that enduring takes place 
is that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole of the world until the end has come. So picking up on that love and also what you read elsewhere in the letters, it seems that love relates to love demonstrated to Christ as you witness to him. Okay. Cool. Time for another. Yes, Josh. Um, in relation to church and lace here, clarifying what the part of the colours in the report. Yes, good question. So just for the recording, um, can we clarify in the letter to Laodicea what the hot and cold refers to? Yeah, it's an interesting one because as you read verse 15, it says, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And naturally, I think what we think is hot's good and cold is bad. But why would Jesus be saying, oh, if you were hot, that would be great. If you were cold, that would be great. But you're not, you're lukewarm. And you think if hot, hot is hot for the gospel, as it were, but cold is cold towards the gospel, then why would Jesus be saying, oh yeah, I want you to be cold for the gospel. Surely lukewarm would be better. But if we think about it slightly differently, and this is a good one for today, what would you rather drink? Would you rather drink hot water, cold water, or lukewarm water? Well, hot water's nice, perfect for your cup of tea. Cold water's spot on, particularly in this weather. Lukewarm, no one wants lukewarm. That is just nasty. So that's where, um, that's where the point's coming from. To be hot or cold is to be, you know, that water tastes good if it's hot or cold. But to be lukewarm, that is nasty. And it's all related to the fact that they had springs that, uh, for whatever reason, were lukewarm. So it related to the uh, place in Laodicea. So what he's saying is, I want you to have zeal. Um, but you don't have zeal, you're apathetic. That zeal could be hot, that zeal could be cold. Either way you'd have zeal. But to be just tepid is just... Nasty. Does that make sense? Cool. Time for one more last chance. Yes, Simon. Can you kind of explain that when he's going on about the city of Satan and his presentation? Yes, excellent. So what we have here, we have it I think in the church to Smyrna in verse nine. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And we also have it in verse 9 of chapter 3. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and not, but lie. 
Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So I think, I think this is all to do with the fact that obviously, you, obviously, initially you've got Jews who meet in the synagogue. When Jesus comes along, uh, things get shaken up a little bit, and after his death, resurrection, and ascension, some Jews become Christians. Now, for a long time, therefore, you've got now you've got Jews and they attend the synagogue. And you've got Jewish Christians who would still be happy and would still want to visit the synagogue because um, Christianity is the true outworking of the Jewish religion. Then you get a third group, a sort of Acts 9, where the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. So now you've got Jews, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So, the Jewish Christians would still naturally go to the synagogue because it is still networking of the Jewish faith because uh, the Messiah has arrived. But what would have happened is the synagogue would close their doors to the Jewish Christians and would persecute them because they weren't seen as Jews, because they'd um, effectively um, committed blasphemy by serving this um, crucified and cursed uh, blasphemer. So, I think that's where this phrase is coming from, this idea that these are the people who think they have access to God and they're keeping, as far as they're concerned, other people from accessing God, but they're standing opposed to God and his anointed one. So they take the name synagogue of Satan in as far as he was the ultimate opposer of God and now they're opposing God. And that's where you see the comfort to these people um, you're experiencing tribulation but this is all part of Jesus' plan the tribulation will occur it shouldn't be a surprise to us but it'll go on until the glory, is, the glory comes and then you get this other later on in Philadelphia you think the door of the synagogue is closed to you don't worry about the door of the synagogue being closed to you because I have the keys of David and I open doors that no one else can shut and shut doors that no one else can open. So you might not have access to the synagogue, but there's a far better door open for you. Okay, let's leave it there. Um, we are going to sing, O Great God of Highest Heaven, and then we'll have a brief reflection um, just to build on what we've been thinking about this morning.